like to follow along in the reading this morning. We're in the book of Galatians, chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 9. Galatians 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach, have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. Let us pray. Father, again, as we have just sung, speak, O Lord. Speak your words to us that we may truly hear and obey, that we may truly understand what you, through the Apostle, are saying to us. We celebrate, even in the hymn that we have sung, the Word of God incarnate through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask that he would speak to us, he would proclaim his gospel to us, and that we may, in a true sense, be the church obedient to our Lord Jesus Christ. Build us up that we may worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's at this point in the greeting and salutations of Paul's letter that we expect to find something along the words, I thank my God in my every remembrance of you. I thank God for your sincere faith, perhaps, or for the love that you have for the saints, or as he does to those in Thessalonica, of your steadfast hope. But we don't find a thanksgiving in Paul's letter to Galatians. Because I think that in his mind, at this point, with the issue facing him, there is nothing to be thankful for. We see instead the words, I am amazed. I marvel. There, there is a sense of surprise at the unexpected. And Paul bears it with regret and with sorrow, perhaps even with grief. And he follows it not with a thanksgiving, but with warnings and denunciations. Why? Why do we not see the thanksgiving? Why do we see these warnings and denunciations? Well, I believe that in his book on Paul, the Apostle to God's Glory, Thomas Schreiner hits it when he says, quote, when the gospel is at stake, Paul issues categorical denunciations in order to protect the boundary between the church and the world. He warns his churches in the strongest terms about opponents so that they will not capitulate with their teaching. Paul's focus is on the gospel that he was 
set aside to preach the gospel which he did deliver to the Galatians and the gospel which they did accept. Now you may be disappointed that at this point Paul does not tell us what the opponents were preaching exactly, but here his thinking is of the gospel preached and the Galatians who received it, and he writes to prevent the opponent's success. And so we see that he says, I am amazed. I, I marvel at these things. And I think there's four things that he brings out in this verse 6 that causes him to marvel, to be surprised, to, to exclaim to them about he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting not something he said, not himself, but him. You are deserting God. And it implies that the Galatians themselves were responsible for this desertion, for this thing that was going on. The desertion is not complete. Some of your translations say you are so quickly removing yourselves. It's going on. And so even in the midst of this tragedy that is occurring, there is some hope. And, and I think, again, it's why Paul is, is coming down on it so fast that there is hope for them to turn around, but they are deserting or removing themselves from him who called them. Some take it as being Paul the messenger, the proclaimer, but I, I don't think they mistook his meaning here. God himself is the one who called them by grace through Christ. He is the one who sent the Logos, the living word of God. And the idea behind Paul's usage of the word calling is, it, is that it is divine and it is full of power and is effectual for what God calls, for the people that he calls. And so he says, I'm, I'm amazed. I, there is a sense of wonder at the fact that you are deserting him who called you. But he is also amazed that they are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ or in the grace of Christ. That was the purpose of the calling. That it, it was graciously given to them that it was by the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ that this call comes. The sense is that he graciously purchased them and brought them into a new relationship with God, that he granted them reconciliation, that he granted them salvation and justification. And Paul says, I'm amazed that this grace by which you were called, you're deserting that. Because when you desert God, you're deserting that grace which he brings. And their folly is that they're abandoning this position of grace, this position of blessing, this position of relationship toward Almighty God. 
I don't understand this. How can this be? They were deserting him in spite of the truth that their calling was in the grace of Christ. All of those things that he mentions up in verse 4 and 5, that Christ gave himself for them, that he delivered them out of the bondage of this present evil age. All of those things, the significance of Christ, Paul says, how can you see that and do this? And he says, so quickly, or so soon, you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Some take this as being short time, that it was a short time from his last visit there to the region of Galatia. And yet I don't see myself any point of reference. There's, there's no time stamp here in what Paul writes. And so I, I think we take it is that his marvel, his amazement is that here came those opponents of the gospel, those who come and preach a different gospel, and how quickly you believe them, knowing, as we will find out going through Galatians, how long he was with them and how long that gospel was preached before they believed. And here he says, here they come. They present their message, and then you have imbibed it. You have embraced it, and you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ for their gospel. And the contrast is between that great and glorious beginning and when they received the gospel of Christ, and now that which threatens to undo all of that. They were so easily persuaded to leave their relationship and position of grace. And Saul says, I'm amazed how quickly this has happened. And what did they desert God and the grace and the gospel for? He says, for a different gospel. They go away from Christ to a different gospel. But what does that really mean? They go away from Christ, they lose Christ, and they embrace a different gospel, yes, but I think we can say it even more powerfully, they embrace a different faith. Now there are some who say, but the Judaizers, and we'll learn about them, as we go along, but those opponents here, they taught Christ. They came bringing a message of Christ and something else. And there are some who say, you know, it's not that bad. It's, they are bringing Christ. And there are times when I hear people say, well, you know, I visited this church and they preach Christ. But Paul said, yeah. <laughs> But it is a different message, it's a different gospel, it's a different faith that they are preaching. And his amazement is they can't hear the difference. And Paul calls these people in Corinthians, he says, these are false apostles. These are deceitful workers. They're, they're not people who are alongside me. They are opposed to my preaching and my message. 
given to me by Christ. And again, there are some who say that Paul comes down with these warnings, their desertion and their leaving these things for a different gospel, but, but he softens. And he says in verse 7, well, it's not really your fault. Let's read verse 7 and see if we can look at it and take it apart. He says, for a different gospel, verse 6, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, you've, you've never heard of this other gospel and you never would have heard this other gospel if they hadn't come in your midst. And they are here to trouble you, to disturb you. The, the, the word means to put a fear or an alarm in you, to disquiet you or to perplex you. That's, that's what be, is behind what Paul sees. This is a disturbance. This is a troubling thing. They don't come among you as brethren. They come among you, as we see that Paul warned against in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders, there will be wolves among you. Paul says, can't you see that? They come to trouble you. And what is their desire? They want to distort or pervert the gospel of Christ. They want to transform the gospel of Jesus Christ into something that is quite the opposite of it and has the opposite character. The, the word is, is used in James when he says, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. It's something quite the opposite. And that's what he's saying to them. They want to distort it. They want to make it something which it is not. And he says, you have left him who called you for a different gospel, which is really not another. Now, there are those who say, well, Paul's kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He says, it's a different gospel. And then when he gets to verse 7, he says, well, you know, it's not really a different gospel. It's just, it, it's, it's, not, it's not another. And there are those who take that phrase and say, well, that makes sense. There can be only one gospel, therefore there cannot be another. But that's not the words that Paul uses here. When he speaks in verse 6, he says a different gospel, or some of your versions, another gospel, and he says, which is not really another. There are two different words that are used that are synonyms. Okay, and I'm not an expert on synonyms, but I know there are words even in the English language that I don't understand the nuance of difference. I know that there's a boat and there's a ship, but I don't know the difference if I were to go to Charleston and look in the harbor between a boat and a ship. I was always taught that a boat is a hole in the water into which you pour money. <laughs> and, but there is a difference between what's a boat and what's a ship. And there's a difference between the word he uses in verse 6, a different gospel, and another gospel. And I think it's worth our time to speak of those here. The, the first word, when he says, unto a different gospel, that's heteros. And when he says, which is really not another, that is the Greek word, alas. And the nuance of difference, I think, is best illustrated if we go to 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 40, Paul uses the language. He says, there is one glory for heavenly bodies, the, 
the sun, the moon, the stars, and there's another glory for earthly bodies. They are, they're a difference in kind. There are bodies, there are animals and plants and people, bodies on earth, but they are different from the heavenly bodies, we call them, the stars and the moon and the sun. And so that is the word heteros. They are different in kind. But in alas, the glory, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, the verse following that, he says, there is a different glory from one star to another star. And I don't know if Paul understood the, the blue and the white and the giant red stars, the difference in their brightness and their heat. But what he's saying is, there is they are different in degree not kind. They are all heavenly bodies. They're all stars, but they have a difference. And so it is as if Paul says, you have abandoned or you are removing yourselves from one who called you for a different gospel, heteros, which is not really another alos gospel. So what does it all mean? Well, I think you could say it this way. You are turning unto a gospel that differs so radically in kind, meaning the way in which we are saved and justified from that which I preach to you, that it is not another gospel, because it's not a matter of degree, it cannot stand beside it because it perverts the true gospel. See, it is a different gospel because it's totally different in kind as heavenly bodies are to earthly bodies. But it's not another one that you can take over here and say, well, it's just a matter of degree. So he can say that it's different in kind, but it's not different in degree because it cannot and will not, I will not allow it to stand beside the true gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so their preaching is not merely perplexing to the minds of the Galatians, but it is removing them from the foundation of what they rest on for salvation. And so he can say it is a different gospel, but it's not another gospel. Do not put it alongside and say, well, there's just a nuance of difference between them. He says, no, it is not another gospel. It's as different as heavenly bodies to earthly. Paul preached the gospel in which salvation is by grace, through faith, and not of ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And those opponents that will learn of the Judaizers preached a salvation by law on the basis of works. And Paul says to the Romans, if your salvation is on the law as a basis of works, it is no longer of grace. It's different and you are embracing a different faith. And what does this bring about? Well, for Paul, it brings a reminder of the divine indignation. 
in verse 8, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. But even if we, and we didn't really look at verse 2 up above, but there are brethren that are with him. There are men who are with him in the preaching of the gospel and this ministry that he has been given, and they take it upon themselves to be co-responsible with him. They're, they're men of what we can understand here of a certainty, of an alertness. And what we find is that this thing that came to Paul, this understanding of this desertion and removing themselves is not hearsay. It's not something that just somebody whispered into his ear, but he has proof of it. He has understood it, that it's been laid out before him. And they are supporting Paul in his case against the Galatian churches. And they're contrasted with these accursed men of verse 8 and 9, or as he goes further in chapter 2, false brethren. And then he adds, but even if an angel from heaven would preach another gospel to you. He's giving us a scenario which could not happen. It's like looking at the impossible thing. But even if an angel from heaven preached to you. And, and some of the commentators say he had to add from heaven because even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light in order to deceive the brethren. And so he is saying to them this, if anyone preaches this impossible thing that couldn't happen, he's trying to appeal to that highest authority that he can conceive here. He says, let him be accursed. The word that you've seen and probably have in the margin of your Bibles is anathema. It's a Greek word that comes to us from the Hebrew kerem, which means devoted. And the, our Greek New Testaments pick that word up in the Greek from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And it means literally a thing devoted to God. And you may say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, he, th this looks bad here. Let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. The origin was used both positively and negatively in the Hebrew. In the book that Tim is reading in Leviticus, we, we see that things are anathema. They are set aside, devoted to God for service. The sacrifices of Leviticus 27 were, were spoken of, of being set aside for that purpose. They were devoted to God for that. But there is also, as we read about the idols in Deuteronomy 7, they were devoted for destruction. They, they were being subject to divine vengeance. And wider and more generally in the New Testament, that is the idea that is picked up by Paul using the word anathema. It's abandoned to the judgment of God. W.E. Vine in his commentary on Galatians says, If anyone fail to be attracted by the character, the glory and excellence of Christ, 
inasmuch as he refuses the blessings, is preparing himself for the curse, the doom of the lost at Christ's return. Paul is, is not speaking here, as some think, of excommunication. It's much more serious than that. He is speaking here of placing or, or a man coming into a ban, a ban which abandons him really to the divine vengeance, to the judgment of God. And he said, Vine says, if you're fully attracted or not fully attracted to this Christ, the one who gave himself, the one who delivered us, he says, you know, read 2 Peter 1, where, where Peter says, God has, by his power, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through him, who by his grace, gives us of his glory and excellence. If that is not what is attracting you, if that is not what you see in the gospel, then you have lost that which we preached last week, the significance of Christ. And if you are doing that, then you are abandoning really yourself to the curse. You're preparing yourself, as Vine says, for the curse. Paul does not use this language lightly, but he uses it because, again, he is drawing that fence around his church, that boundary to protect his church and the gospel which they received from error. And it is as he says in verse 9, as I have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. See, Paul thinks of that theoretical that can't happen if we are an angel from heaven. But here, here I think we see the apostle, he, he says, I have said this before, and it doesn't mean verse 8, okay? It means that when he was with them, he pronounced these things. He warned them of these things. He saw the Judaizers coming in. He heard of their message and their plan to distort the gospel of Christ. And he's saying, you've heard me say this before, but I say it now again. I don't, don't give me other names. Don't even go there and tell me about, you know, would Barnabas do this or so? No, he's saying, I say this again. And we know that Paul is, is here. He, he's not speaking in terms of sentimentality. He's not saying this because of just a feeling. And he's not saying this because he is just caught up in some kind of red-eyed passion. He's saying it because this is what he stands on. He's deliberate, and he's speaking in terms of judgment. I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be anathema. Paul's authority and his mission are determined by the one who called him and sent him. That's verse 1. Not from men, not through the agency of man. 
But as Tom Schreiner says, authority ultimately resides in the gospel, not the ministers themselves. And Paul is saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to protect the gospel. And notice that he puts it on them. See, he rails against the opponents in his, pre his letters, does he not? Calling them deceitful workers, false prophets, false brethren. But remember, the letters are to the churches. They're to the believers and to the congregations. And so, again, that's why I say that the theme here is the significance of Christ and the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And so he says to them, My, the gospel I preach was complete. It's final. It's absolute. It's authoritative on its own. And in verse 8, he says, We preached. The, meaning the missionaries. He says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you the, contrary to that which we have preached to you. He's saying we have that responsibility for this gospel. But in verse 9, he looks at them and he says, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. He, the responsibility is on you. You received it. This was the gospel that taught you what Christ had done. This is the gospel that you accepted. This is the gospel that freed you from your sins to live a life of obedience. This is the gospel that lit up your darkness of your soul and gave you the light. And so he repeats it, let him be anathema who would preach contrary to this gospel. There is only one true God. And therefore, yes, there can only be one true gospel. But I think I agree with James Denny in his commentary. He says, we need to be intolerant. And I know it's not politically correct to talk about intolerance, but this is what he says. Be, quote, intolerant of everything which ignores, denies, or explains that gospel away. And some in our day have continued what I think, I, not a good historian, as my fellow elders know, but I think it's in the late 1800s, there was a movement of looking at, I think really from this phrase, the gospel of Christ, and, and trying to dissect it and nuance it. The, the Greek, when it says the gospel of Christ, could mean that it is the gospel Christ preached. It could also mean the gospel which sets forth Christ. And there were those of the, and they, they say, you know, the gospel of Christ is not the gospel about Christ. It's the gospel that he preached. And so what they did was they took the scriptures, and I don't know, they, they said two primary sources, Mark and something called Q, and they put them together. And really what it boiled down to, if I can understand it, is the sayings of Christ, and they left all of the deeds and acts of Christ out. And there is no supernatural action of Christ allowed in their gospel. 
And so what you end up with is you get this good teacher, or you get this itinerant, benevolent, kind, roving rabbi storyteller, but you do not get a savior. And so they say it is the gospel not about Christ, but of Christ. But the gospel that Jesus proclaimed was about him, was it not? Didn't he open the scriptures and read from Isaiah and say, Today, in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. Did he not say, you search the scriptures because in them you think you're going to find eternal life, but it is they who speak of me. But it may, the Greek phrase, may also say to us or mean something else. The gospel of Christ could be read, the gospel belonging to Christ. And I think that's what Paul is pointing out here. If I can understand it, and if I, not an original thought with me, I get it from Gresham Machen in his treatise on Galatians, but it makes sense for what Paul is doing here. He's not yet looking at what the opponents preach. He is saying, my gospel, the gospel given to me and given my authority by God, belongs to Christ. It is his gospel. It is, yes, about him. It is the one that shows us who he is, and it is the gospel that he preached, but I am a steward of it, and I am going to fence that gospel and protect it because the lives of the people hearing my gospel and accepting that gospel depend on it. And anyone trying to violate that gospel, pervert that gospel, change that gospel, preach or disturb believers with another gospel, expose themselves to divine indignation. And the penalty is inflicted by God himself. So let those who would preach another gospel be reminded that the scripture also says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask again that you would speak, O oh Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would speak to our minds, that we may understand these things, that we may not fall into error, that we may not wander and desert him who has called us, that we may not despise the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ by which you have graciously given yourself and delivered us. But may, may we honor you and obey you in these things. May you build up your church in these things. May you cause your church to grow and be a glory and honor to you in all these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 at verse 23.
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.